If you have a copy of the scripture, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And if you would and you are able, would you please stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's word as Miss Hannah Martindale reads Hannah's prayer. Like what I did there, huh? All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. <clears throat> thank you for this, uh, this wonderful prayer that's recorded for us in the Bible. I pray today as we study this and look at it, uh, that we would see that the, the heart of this prayer is, is, is your opposition to pride. Uh, that, that, that you oppose the proud, but you, you give grace to the humble. And that ultimately, Father, it's not through our own doing or, or uh, through our own merit that we're ultimately saved and brought into your kingdom. It's all through you. It's through Jesus, and it's through what he's done. And so I pray today, if somebody needs to hear that message for the first time, that you would save them. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, as believers, we, we need to hear that message all the time. We need to go back to the cross, go back to the gospel, to remember what Jesus has done, because it's there and only there that we're changed, and then our lives uh, reflect the one who saved us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> so if you remember last week, we, we said that, that 1 Samuel technically follows the book of Judges. And, and what we said was that uh, the last verse of the book of Judges is very simple. It says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And, and that's kind of where we find ourselves in, in this story is that the nation of Israel is in the middle of a complete and total moral decline. They're, they're ripping themselves apart at the scenes. It's falling apart. And in the midst of all of this, when it looks like everything's out of control, everything's chaos, that God's not involved at all, it's in the middle of all this that God begins to lay the groundwork for something amazing. And he does that not by showing up at the house of the rich or the powerful or the famous or the celebrity. Instead, he shows up at the home of a no-name man in a no-name town. And he shows up to his barren wife, Hannah. And God begins um, to, to work in Hannah. Hannah, who has been unable to have children, has spent years being provoked by her husband's second wife, comes to the end of herself and she cries out to God, asking him for only what he can do. And in due time, as we looked at last week, she conceives a son and she names him Samuel. 
And what we said was that there's so much more going on in that story than just a a barren woman uh, getting pregnant. What we said was that first off, God's way of salvation always starts with a barren soul. It always starts when we say, listen, God, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring to the table. I'm morally bankrupt, and the only hope of salvation I have is through you. It begins there. We said that our suffering has all gone through the hands of God and that our suffering is never meaningless. Now, we may not understand even a tenth of our suffering in this lifetime, and in humility, we have to recognize that, but we also have to understand that it's never meaningless. Hannah could never have imagined that 3,000 years later, a bunch of people in a no-name town in the middle of nowhere would be gathered together on a Sunday morning studying her story, learning from her. And finally, what we said was that we can't read the story or, or any story in the Old Testament and go, hey, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like Hannah. So, so I'm going to leave here. I'm going to pray really hard, and I'm going to ask God for whatever it is that I, I want, and then God will give me what I ask for. No, what, what we have to see is that, that Hannah's pointing us to the greater son of promise, that Hannah's pointing us to the ultimate birth when a virgin girl from a no-name town by the power of the Holy Spirit conceived and gave birth to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, really the story of Hannah is really the story of Jesus. In his commentary on 1 Samuel, John Woodhouse opens up with this interesting question. Here's what he says. He says, do you believe in God? Now that might seem a strange question to pose to a reader of a commentary on 1 Samuel. I mean, who would read a book like this except someone who takes God seriously and has an honest interest in his word? And yet I ask the question with complete seriousness. Because those of us who indeed believe in God very easily forget the astonishing difference such belief must make to our understanding of everything. It's a good question. It's a good question. Especially as he's writing to pastors, because that's most of the time who reads commentaries. And and it's tough because, uh, especially in our part of the world, like, here's what we do. We we treat our belief in God as, as part of our life. Right? It's, it's part of our life. And, and oftentimes it's just, it's a mind. How you behave when you're at home, right? You, you have your online self who just killing it, right? The game's great, right? This part of your house is messy, but we're not taking a picture of that. We're going to take a picture over here, right? Uh, we're we're, we're going we're gonna, to, everything looks great. My kids look great. Like we have that part of our lives. We, we, have, uh, 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 we, we, we have our family selves. We have our friend selves. And we have all these different compartments. And then way, way down here at the bottom is our church self. So that's the person we are maybe once or twice a week, depending on your involvement. And that person, who they claim to believe on those couple times a week, never really comes and interacts with this person in any other part of our life. So the church self saves kind of in Tupperware, down here in that drawer, right, where you keep all your Tupperware, and then it never comes out to interact with your work self, or your home self, or your community self, or, or whatever it is. Woodhouse says, to believe in the God of the Bible is to see the whole world and all of life in radically different terms from the person who does not hold disbelief. The person for whom believing in God is a small thing, just part of their complex attitudes with no more drastic consequences than possible church attendance, does not believe in the God of whom the Bible speaks. See, what we say we believe about God especially about the God of the Bible, when that becomes more to us than just this intellectual ascent, right? This thing that we just say, yeah, I believe in, in God. When, when it becomes something that gets into our hearts, it completely changes our values. 
our ambitions, our joys, our sorrows, our loves, our hates, our motivations. It, it changes our confidence. It changes our, our fears. And see, this is what we see in the story of Hannah today. So she's going to pray to God for what he's done. Not, not for what she's done. She's not prideful. She's humble. She's, she's, she's been um, humbled by grace. And so she is completely changed by that. So look with me, if you will, first in, in verse 21 of chapter 1. Let's just look at this real quick. Remember, she's, she's had her son named Samuel, which means to ask. And in verse 21, it says, The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So it's been a year later. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is winged, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And, he, and she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Verse 27, for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And she worshiped the Lord there. So a couple of things that we see at this just brief section before we get into her prayer. So she waits till the child's old enough to wean. In, in Hebrew culture, that could have been three or four, right? Which is maybe a little awkward. You get your four-year-old preschooler and he's still, you know, nursing, doing his things. But that's what they did, right? And now Kana is leaving to worship. He tells her, he says, hey, may the Lord establish his word. So, so this kind of seems to be pointing to the fact that, that God's doing something bigger here than just Hannah. That, that she's part of the larger purposes for God's people. So, so God gave life to a barren ch- woman where there was no life. And what's going to happen here and what we see throughout the story of Samuel is that he's going to do the same for his people. His people right now, there is no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. His people are spiritually barren and God is about to bring life to his people. So when the child's old enough to wean, Hannah keeps her word, and she brings him to the temple along with the sacrifice. Now, uh, there's some some translation debate here. It says a three-year-old bull, but some people say that the Hebrew is real ambiguous, and some people think that she, it says that she brought three bulls. That's a lot. Um, and, And there's no reason to think that that's not what it says, but regardless, what she brings is a substantial sacrifice for a small, rural woman like her. It's, it's a lot. And what you're seeing and what Hannah shows us is, 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 that, uh, uh, is, that, is that generosity is something that's demanded of God's people. She rightly shows us that grace demands that we respond by giving back to the Lord. All God gives us belongs to him. And it's intended for our good and it's intended for his glory. So if we just receive God's good gifts just for us, then that's to misuse them and to despise the one who gave them to us. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. As believers, Christ shed his own blood for us. He gave his life for us. He was generous with his life. And in response, we're generous to that grace. And this is what Hannah's doing the same thing. God graciously gave her a child, and now she is generous in her return and what she's giving back to him. And she says, I've prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me my request. Now, a very literal reading of this in Hebrew says this, and I like the the, the literal reading. For the child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him, and I have also given back what was asked to Yahweh. 
All the days he lives is one that is asked for by Yahweh. Right, we like that verse, verse 27, right, for this child I've prayed. And it's a beautiful verse, but we kind of miss that next part that she's basically saying, yeah, he was a gracious gift to me, and now I give my child back to God. That, that child's been on loan to me. I don't own that child. I don't belong to that child. That child belongs to God. See, Hannah understood something here. And if you're a parent, you need to understand this as well, is that the job and the duty of us as Christian parents is to fit our children for service to God. First and foremost, that's our job. So whether in formal ministry, as God maybe calls them to the mission field or calls them to the pastorate or calls them to, to, to serve in some capacity or to just have them be productive members of our church, that our aim as parents shouldn't be for successful kids, but Christians, right? Now don't leave here mad at me. Well, Byron said, I don't need to make my kids successful. Not what I'm saying, right? We, we should push our kids to succeed. Yes and amen. You don't want to raise a bunch of little bums. I get that. We don't. But first and foremost, our aim should be for them to know and love Jesus. We should want him to know and love Jesus and, and love his church. I've talked about this before, but we should want our kids to have boring testimonies. Like we don't want our kids to have to go through some of the dumb stuff that we went through. We want our kids to be like, ah, man, just got drugged to church my whole life. And for some reason, like here I am, 40 years old, still going to church. Met my wife at church, got married at church, and just, just boring old testimony. But that's what we want for our kids. Hannah understood that. She's saying, listen, he isn't mine. He's yours, and guess what, God? Now I'm going to give him back to you. And there's something very, very interesting in the word Lent there, if you want to underline it. It's the same Hebrew word where we get the word Saul. So, so we get some foreshadowing of what's going to happen here. She asked for a child. What's the nation of Israel fixing to do very soon? They're going to ask for a king, and they're going to get exactly what they asked for when they asked for Saul. So before leaving, Hannah worships the Lord. And let's look at the prayer, verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So remember last week, I told you, she's not bargaining with God. And this prayer, what we read right here, proves that she's not. So, so also, uh, it, it shows us, uh, along with her actions, that, that she hasn't compartmentalized her faith. This is not something that's just a part of her life. It is her life. It's the core of who Hannah is. So her first prayer last week, it came from a distressed soul. This one comes from a soul that has tasted the goodness of the Lord, a soul that has seen his graciousness. So when she says her heart exalts in the Lord, in biblical thought, the heart is just more than the seed of emotions. So for us, we, you know, our heart's where the emotions come from and all that. And in biblical thought, the heart is the deep center of a person. So when it talks about a heart, it's saying who a person is. So your thoughts, your will, your decisions, as well as your deep emotions come from the heart. And so what she's saying is that my heart, it, the focus of my heart is now the Lord. Like the Lord is my joy. My heart gets its joy from, from him. When she says her horn is exalted, it's a symbol of strength. 
Have you ever watched those crazy shows on, on Discovery Channel or National Geographic? Have you ever seen animals that fight with horns, right? Or they, and, and it's kind of a bloody imagery. It's, it's talking about an animal that, that uses its horn or horns to gore another animal. And then what happens when it's done? That animal struts around with that horn lifted high. It's, it's proud of that horn. That, that horn is a symbol of its strength. That's what she's saying is that my head is now lifted high. That's a symbol of strength. Her mouth derides its enemies. It's another animal metaphor. It's the idea of a, of, a, of, a, of a mouth that's open, ready to devour its prey. I talked to a guy this morning. It was coyote hunting yesterday, and he said a raccoon came at him yesterday. He was, ah, right? And that's kind of the idea. The, the mouth's open. It's ready to fight. Like, it's coming after its prey. And so you got a little girl praying this, like, graphic poem. But, but it's really beautiful. And, and the reason she's saying all this is, is found at the end of verse 1. What does she say? Like my head's lifted high. My, my mouth is open and snarling at its enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. It all came from you. See, this isn't just empty religious jargon for her. Like it tends to be for us. She was a childless wife and now she had a son. She'd been the object of cruel mockery, but her rival couldn't laugh at her anymore. She'd been distressed and now she's filled with joy, and she rightfully understands she didn't do any of it. God did it all. He's her salvation. He's her strength. He's her joy. He answered her prayers. But here's where it gets crazy because something else is going on here. If you notice verse one, right? She says, my, like four or five times, or I in there. But then starting in, in verse two, she, she shifts away from that. And so the, the focus moves away from her now, and it moves to what is true of God's people as a nation. Remember, there's more going on here than just Hannah. So we're in the first prayer. Last week, we said she echoed the, the, the language of Exodus. Remember what she told God? Hey, look on your servant and see my affliction. Well, how many times did that talk about that in Exodus, where God saw the affliction of his people, or he delivered them from their affliction? He tells them that throughout Exodus. So she's looking back and, and looking at what's true of God in the past and how he's been faithful to his people. She's applying that to her, and now she does the same. She's going to echo the language of a conquering our army. I had Joe read this earlier, Exodus 15, 1 through 3. The Song of Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So, so her suffering, in a sense, is a representation of Israel's suffering. So what God did for her, he's now fixing to do for the nation of Israel. There's a, there's a connection between her story and Israel's story. Right? Verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Again, the Song of Moses, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. In verse 2, she says two things here. First, God's holy. He's morally pure, therefore he's separated from his creatures. God stands outside of us, away from us. But since he's holy, all of his intentions for his people are holy. So it's not possible at all for God's motives to be calloused or mean. Even in judgment, a holy God is always right. 
So since God is perfectly holy, what matters is not what circumstances are come our way, but our relationship with the Holy One. So if we have a relationship with the Holy One, no matter what comes our way, we, we still trust in Him. We still lean on Him. So she says He's holy, He's separate from us, but then what does she say? He's a rock. The image of God as a rock shows His faithfulness to protect His people. She shows great theological savvy here. Because she starts with his holiness first, who he is, right? And all of his motives are pure, and then she moves to his blessings. And what she's teaching you and I is that if we place a higher glory on the blessings God gives rather than God himself, holiness, knowing that God is pure, that we're not, and the only way we enjoy being accepted into his loving care is through the atoning ministry of his son, Jesus Christ. And see, if that's true for you and I, then, then look, verse 3 is what flows out of that. Talk no more so very proudly. Let, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So in other words, his opinion's really all that matters, not ours, not the opinions of those around us, and that there is absolutely no room to put our faith in a Tupperware dish just to put them in the bottom drawer and only pull it out every now and then. And what he says is that, that we don't talk arrogantly or proudly. So since God knows all, He's holy, he's separate from us, he knows everything. There is no possibility of us as human beings deceiving God. And human pride is a form of deceit. And because he is a God who knows, our pride must stop. And verses four through eight give us the heart of the prayer. And what we see is that the heart of a prayer, of this prayer in particular, is against pride. It's against arrogance. Look what she says in verse four. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. So she catalogs a series of things that generate human pride. And she shows how those things look different from God's perspective. So first off, the bows of the mighty are broken. Again, we're echoing the song of Moses. She's thinking back at the defeat of, of the Egyptians and, and, and their army and how strong they were and how powerful they were when God destroyed them. It's a way of saying that human power will always be broken, that the Lord will always demolish human power. Do you, do you believe that? I guess that's a good question to ask and really to think about. Because I think a lot of times we, we say we believe it, but then we don't because then we moan and we, oh, right, we see all these people that are powerful and have all this power and all this control, and we just go, oh, man, they've got all this stuff, and we don't understand that God's above them and more powerful than they are and that God will break human power, that there's coming a day where all the human power will fade because God will be here with us in the flesh. The other side of the coin, it says, is that the feeble bind on strength. So, so, so it's just this reversal of how God sees things. Uh, very soon in the book of Samuel, we'll, we'll read the story of a giant man with great strength and great power. And everybody thinks that this guy can't be beaten. And all of a sudden, you get a little boy with a bunch of rocks, and he defeats this giant. Human power, human weakness look completely different. 
if you believe in God as Hannah believes in God. She says, those who have hired themselves out for bread. Um, uh, those who were full have hired themselves out, out for bread. So people who seem to have plenty and, and seem as though they can never be in need, the reality is, is usually they're empty. Usually they're hungry. Usually they, they don't have everything that they want everybody to think that they do. That human security doesn't come from what one has, but who one knows is what she's getting at. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. John Woodhouse says, just as Hannah's misery at her barrenness was not unchangeable, Penea's happiness at her many children was not secure. Life is not like that. God can reverse every human circumstance completely. It's just that Hannah's grasp with God was, was amazing. What, what I love about this is that like, people say that like, the Old Testament uh, writers and, and, and the characters in there had no concept of resurrection from the dead, but, but if you look at this, Hannah did. Like, like Hannah knew that the Lord changes life to death and death to life. So, so when you and I like, live our lives and refuse to think of death, or when we think of death and ignore the fact that God raises the dead, we distort reality. Right, that there's an expiration date for all of us and we need to be aware of that. But if you know Jesus, there's a resurrection date as well. And they both have to be kept in mind and that's what she's doing right here. Verse seven, a very tough verse for us as Americans. The Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich. He brings low, he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Earlier this year when Jim Harbaugh beat Ryan Day, right, the head coach of Ohio State, he had this great quote. A lot of you maybe saw it. He said, yeah, a lot of us were, some people were born on third base and think they got a triple. And what he was doing was making the joke that, you know, hey, Ryan Day didn't do anything. Mr. Rosy Cheeks didn't do anything, right, to inherit that. Pro like, he just got a good program giving it to him. Harbaugh saying, hey, I scratched, I clawed, I had to build this program. This is Hannah's way of saying the same thing. Like, all of us were born on third base, we think we got a triple. Like, there's nothing you have that God didn't give to you. Like, like, everything you have. So if you're successful at business, yeah, God gave you the savvy to do that. If you're, if you're athletic, if you're smart, if you're whatever it is, God is the one who ultimately gave you the abilities to do the things that you do. And so what Hannah's trying to get at here is that poverty, prosperity, obscurity, popularity, I don't like to tell you this, but they're all in the hand of God. He determines all of this. Verse eight, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy to set with princes in the place of honor. That all is God. Alistair Begg put it so well. He says, your money is not about the government and it's actually not about the stock market. It's actually not about your view or my view of political economic theory, whatever that might be. God sovereignly determines this. In Paul's case, as Jay read earlier, allowing him to say, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content because he realized that whether he abounds or whether he is abased, the fact is that God is constant in his faithfulness. That doesn't make poverty something special and wealth something horrible. It just simply puts those things in their place. Isn't that good? That's what Hannah's saying here. Taken with verse six, she's just trying to get us to understand that God is in control of life from birth to death, and we would do right to remember that. And folks, that's good news as we look around our culture, isn't it? There is no king. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we look at all these politicians. And sadly, as I've had to say many, many times for many, many years, we look at politicians in our part of the world and we go, oh man, it's that guy. Got to get that guy right there, right? 2024 is coming. Got to get a boy back in there. 
Man, if we can just do it, we're going to fix it. And you hear all these politicians say, well, if we'll just do that, then we can fix this. If we do that, then we can fix this. If we adjust this, then we can deal with that. And here's what we find out. It doesn't work, does it? We're just going in circles over and over and over again. So unless there's a God who's in control of all things, and unless there's a God who can raise people out of the ash heap, able to bring us out of the only poverty that really matters, spiritual poverty and need, if we don't have that, if we don't trust in that God, if we don't put our faith in that, then we're without hope. And that's what Hannah's trying to get us to see, that it's only through God that our hope lies. It's not through human pride. It's not through human power. It's not through money. It's not through wealth that she's able to sing. She's able to make her faith the core of everything she is because she knows that. Because God has been gracious to her. And now she's singing in response to that, right? Look at verse nine. She says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by my might, or not by might, shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Verse 9 tells us that the winners in the end will not be the strong, won't be the powerful, won't be the wealthy, won't be the famous, won't be the popular, the successful. He who dies with the most toys still dies. That's what she's saying that the Lord will bring through those who belong to him, the faithful ones. Those that are not his faithful ones, what does he call them? The wicked ones. So listen, it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they become. Without the Lord, they can't prevail. Human might won't prevail. Again, are we not gonna see that very, very soon in the book of Samuel? Very soon, you're gonna have a man who's a specimen of a man. Looks like he ought to be playing quarterback for some D1 university. He's, head, he's a foot taller than everybody else, got the good looking jaw, right? Everybody looks at him and was like, man, there's a leader right there. That's my guy. And then come to find out that no matter how good he is, his natural abilities aren't enough. But yet we got this other guy, this boy, that when Samuel shows up, his dad doesn't even think he's good enough to be with the brothers. Samuel's like, isn't there another one? And he's like, David? Oh, man. Bring down the sheep. Yeah, don't worry about David, right? Like, like, David can't even, like, he gets all C's in school. We don't need David. Like, David's not even here. And yet, that's the guy that God chooses to use. The role reversal there is, is stunning. And verse 10 is, is just a warning, saying, hey, don't set yourself against the Lord. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Don't show up on that last day going, hey, look at all the good things I did. Look how I lived my life. That's why you should let me in. That's not what it's saying. That God will judge the world. We, we get that part. But then I want you to look at what she says. It says he's going to give strength to what? To his king. Do we got a king yet? No. God has given Hannah a prophetic word that's pointing forward, not just to David. Sure, David's in view here. But he's pointing forward to the true and better David, the real David, King Jesus. Here's the thing about the Bible, and here's the thing that, that, that I think heaven, Hannah's prayer is trying to get us to see, is that throughout the Bible, it's remarkable how God chooses to work. It, it, it always is with people who can't fix themselves. It's always with people who can't fix their situation. So, so take uh, the Old Testament. 
God's purposes for his people always comes about through barren women. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all three had barren wives. Both Rachel, Jacob's wife, and Hannah had a rival who could have children while they themselves enjoyed the love of their husband, the greater love. Y'all remember our boy O'Connell last night? Well, ain't I worth more than 10 sons, girl, right? And the parallels don't stop there. Think about Samson. Samson was born to a woman who was previously barren. Samson is said to be a permanent Nazarite, and although Samuel's not described as a Nazarite, the Bible presents Samuel as a Nazarite. Then as you look forward, we read of another person who seems to be a permanent Nazarite. You know who that is? John the Baptist. The parallel between Hannah and Elizabeth is very, very significant in the Bible. Elizabeth is the new Hannah, then John must be the new Samuel. Samuel prepared the way for David, John prepares the way for Jesus, the new David, the better David. And throughout Scripture, God gives children to barren women to indicate that salvation will only be accomplished through his power and through his grace. There's something bigger at play there. But what's crazy is that when it comes to the Savior himself, he does one better, doesn't he? He's born to a virgin. Like That's the ultimate demonstration that salvation comes through God's power, right? And here's what's crazy, is the minute that Mary finds out about this, she sings a song. Flip over if you've got your Bible real quick to Luke chapter one, right? A couple pages over New Testament, Luke chapter one. We, we call this Mary's song of praise or the Magnificat. And as I read it, I just want you to listen to the parallels, the parallels between Mary's song and Hannah's song. See if you can spot them in here. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Right? Now, real quick, have you ever heard us use the phrase that like, hey, a legend in his own mind? You ever heard that about people? Remember Uncle Rico? Like he was a legend in his own mind on Napoleon Dynamite. I just put me in. I couldn't want state. Got a lot of them in Spearman still. Like, you know, hey, back in 86, man, I was really good. Come to find out you weren't really good. Like legend in his own mind. Just kind of just replaying that over and over again. In other words, what Mary's saying is that like the proud don't see well. Pride don't see well. That those of us who are, are prideful are just legends in our own minds. That's what she, he's getting at right there. Verse 52. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You see the parallels there? And the role reversals that are taking place there? That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? Hannah says in chapter uh, 2, verses 6 and 7, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shield, he raises up. The Lord makes poor, he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Mary says in 51 and 52, he's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from the thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. We've said at the beginning, we're guilty of putting our faith in the compartment. Yet Mary or Hannah, neither one of them does that. 
And so like I told you last week, the solution for you and I then is not to leave and say, hey, I'm gonna walk out of here and I'm gonna pray really hard this week. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask God for something. I'm really gonna believe it. I'm gonna bring a sacrifice. I might bring a bull or something. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something. And if we go out of here and we think that, what's gonna happen is it'll never work. Because the solution is not to try harder, but to look to the one that Mary and Hannah point to. See, we, in their prayers, what I want you to see is that there are two kingdoms in history. There's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God's kingdom. And there's two types of people in this world. There's those who defy God and ignore him and those who humble themselves before him. Tim Chester says there's a fault line running through history. On the one side are the self-righteous and the self-reliant. On the other are those who are humbled by their sin. See, if we stay prideful and arrogant, we will be humbled. If you don't think your sin is that big a deal that it required the death of God's son, you will never change. You'll spend your life thinking that you're good enough or that you earned your way to heaven because after all, you're not as bad as your neighbor, right? I mean, that guy's a lot worse than you are. Your behavior at the stock show wasn't near as bad as that guy's last night after it was all said and done, right? If you do that, then what happens is you compartmentalize your faith. It'll always be kept in a box, only to come out at certain times, only to come around certain crowds, and it'll never impact your life. But listen to me. If in humility, you recognize your sin for what it is, so that if you understand that your only hope of salvation is not through earning, but through what was earned for you, then that changes your heart. That melts your heart. That changes you into the type of person that doesn't just keep their faith in a box. Hannah says in chapter two, verses seven and eight, that the Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. What did Jesus say in Luke 14, 11? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the way we know this is true is because Jesus himself, as the book of Philippians tells us, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or something to be used for his advantage. Instead, what did he do? He took the nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death on a cross. See, at the cross, Jesus was brought down to the grave. At the cross, Jesus was humble, humbled, he was humiliated, but then God made him alive, he raised him from the grave, and he gave him a throne of honor. Jesus was brought lower than Hannah was. Jesus was brought lower than you and I could ever be, but God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that's above every name. So if you want a faith like Hannah, if you want a faith like Mary, it starts not by looking at yourself and what you can do, it starts with being humble and humbled and looking to Jesus and running to the cross. So if you don't know Jesus today, today's the day for you to put your trust in him. Today's the day to say, hey, I on my own can never earn my way into heaven. I can never be made right with this holy God. It only comes through what is earned for me. And you need to trust in Jesus. And then for the rest of us, listen, as believers, Martin Luther said that the, the Christian life is one of repentance right? And I use that word and I'm not afraid to use it, is that we must constantly repent. Is that it's a running back to the cross saying, hey, I hadn't earned nothing. I hadn't done nothing. It's not by my will or by my power, but it's through Jesus. And it's constantly reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us.
And when we do that, we change to have a faith like Hannah or to have a faith like Mary because of who we're looking to. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you so much for this prayer that was recorded by Hannah. Father, I, I thank you so much for um, the way the, the Bible holds women in such high regard, Father. And that we have stories of, of Hannah and we have stories of, of Mary and what you've done for them. And we see the theological savvy that comes from these women. And Father, we thank you that those things are recorded for us so that we can learn from them. But above all, I thank you that this prayer isn't about her. This prayer is about you. It's about the salvation that comes only through you. And so, Father, I pray today that we would be the kind of people that would recognize that it's not by our will or by our power, but it's only through Jesus. That as believers, you would keep us humble. That you would help us to constantly run back to the cross to remember what was done for us there. And as we do that and as we gaze upon you crucified in our place for our sins, then our hearts change. Then our faith doesn't become something we just keep in a box for every now and then. It becomes the thing that informs all that we do. May we be a people and be a church like that. Father, I love you so much. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Be with us now as we stand and as we worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand this morning?